And if you'll keep your Bibles open and turn with me to the New Testament, our sermon text this morning is going to be Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. And then after we read Titus chapter 3, those few verses, I want to look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and read to you verses 9 through 11. So first Titus 3, verses 3 through 5, and then 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Knowing that Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. People of God, hear this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then over in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Again, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth here in this selection, and he writes this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, here before us are really two examples of a theme in which the Apostle Paul spends much time in his writings throughout the New Testament trying to emphasize for us that there was a way in which we lived apart from Christ. And now there is a way in which we live as belonging to the body of Christ, or belonging, better yet, to Christ Himself. And that's emphasized for us there in verse 3, as He says that we were once, and then He begins to add some descriptions or some characteristics of those who are apart from Christ, the foolish, the disobedient, the ones who were led astray or deceived, and so on all the way through the end of verse 3 before he begins to introduce to us the gospel in verse 4. The purpose in reading uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 and 11 was that Paul really implements some of the same style of writing there to the church at Corinth. He begins to list these sins or even these characteristics of sinfulness within the people. But then he establishes, but once were you or you used to be this, but now you are 
this because of the gospel. Once you were a sinful, sin-filled, apart from Christ person, but now, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, His act of impassive obedience, because of your faith in Him, now you are saved, is essentially His message here before us. But there is a glaring difference, I think, that needs to be emphasized here between the selection in 1 Corinthians and the selection of Titus. Because in 1 Corinthians, he's reminding the Corinth believers, you were, you were, you were. And now here in Titus 3, you notice how he writes, we ourselves were. You see, it's a a play if you will, on the original Greek. Paul is trying to emphasize alongside of Titus and these believers in the island of Crete that he himself sees himself as a new creation in Christ Jesus. That he was an old man, but now he has become a new man because of his faith in the gospel. He includes himself alongside of these believers, and I think that is very important for us to understand. Because not only is Paul rightly reminding himself, preaching the gospel to himself, I was an old man, but now I am a new creation. He is helping us, or at least helping the believers there in the island of Crete and Titus to not think that he is some sort of super apostle. You know, here it is that Paul is establishing that the gospel of God has worked in his life just as it has in Titus' life. And just as it has in the elders who are being appointed in the island of Crete, their lives. And all the believers that have gathered in these local churches and church plants, their lives. You know, it's really easy for us to look upon someone like the Apostle Paul who experiences the risen Christ there on the road to Damascus who sees the heavens open before him and he says it's so majestic and mysterious that I can't even begin to mumble what I've seen, but just know it's great. This super apostle in our mind recognizes that the gospel of God saves him just as it does everybody else. He puts himself very much in the same boat, we might say. And if you think about the apostle Paul, you would think about how radical the gospel of God really is because remember Paul before he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus he was a trained Pharisee a very zealous Pharisee at that he was a religious man who hated Christianity but also hated the Roman authority that oversaw the government of his municipalities he was filled with hate but he was also Out of his heart flows actions, right? He was also guilty of murder as he holds the cloaks of the men who stoned Stephen. He was guilty of spewing vile words against the Roman Empire and even trying to lead anarchy against the Roman officials. He foolishly trusted his works, his obedience to the law. And even as a Pharisee began to add a legalistic man-made religion to try to earn God's favor. His life was transformed, but also very perverted by sin. And Paul said, that is who I once was, but now, 
because of the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appearing in the person of Jesus Christ, I have been saved, or we have been saved. But before he even gets to the gospel message there in verse 4, I think it's fitting for us to look at these many different descriptions that he gives for us in in verse 3. Because here is something that I was speaking with uh, my Sunday school class about this morning. We just started the letters of John by Dr. Ian Hamilton in the very last couple of paragraphs talking about are we really okay? Are, are we okay understanding what the Bible says about us as sinners? And does that cause us then to flee to Christ for salvation? That's what the Apostle Paul's doing. He wants these characteristics to remind you of who you once were so that you'll flee to Christ even more for salvation and faith. And so notice how he describes what we once were. He says first, in verse 3, that we were foolish. That we were foolish. I actually think the ESV tries to make that sound a little more scholarly than it actually is. Because if you were to look at the original Greek there, the, the best translation would be stupid. But we were stupid or we were dumb. We were foolish to think that apart from God, we could do anything on our own. When I think about foolish here in in terms in which the Apostle Paul is writing, it means that we are foolish in, in trying to come to God in any way that He has not prescribed. That we're foolish, stupid, dumb to try to earn some sort of favor with God when He has given us the only means to find favor with Him. It's not that we're interested in carefully understanding His ways. It's that we desire to, to tread our own paths and make our own way for us. And so you think about the way that this displays itself within the world. I think we probably all know those people who say they are in Christ, and yet they try to fill the deepest desires of their life with worldly things. I hope you know what I mean there. Oftentimes when I'm sharing the gospel with people around our community, oftentimes it starts with this idea that they speak of. It's, it's as if, Pastor Matt, I have a hole with, within myself. I, I long to be full. I long to be fulfilled. And yet there's just something missing within me. And I've tried everything. I've tried everything. I've you know, I, I've tried to cast my idea of fulfillment upon my bank account or my job status. I've tried to be fulfilled with sin, addictions, immorality. I, I've, I've tried to find a fulfillment in, in the way that I'm accepted within my community. I, I've tried to find fulfillment in all of these worldly things. And, and oftentimes, my next comment is, well, you have found that those things are fleeting. Because earthly things, they will pass away, won't they? When we talk about having this need for a fullness of joy, this idea of being fulfilled, we must understand that our fulfillment will never come by a thing. It will only come by a person. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, we were foolish like that. Chasing the things of the world to try to bring us some sort of satisfaction when only Christ will bring full joy and satisfaction. That's one way that displays itself, especially in our context. The other way it displays itself is through legalism. The same sins in which Paul struggled with uh, as he was a zealous Pharisee. This this legalism, this foolishness of, of trying to earn favor with God by works. You remember, the Apostle Paul knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He, he obeyed the law, every jot and tittle, to the best of his understanding. Like I've already said, it wasn't just that he obeyed the Old Testament law as revealed through Moses, but actually he added more and more and more and more and more laws to try to earn some sort of favor with God. And yet, what the Apostle Paul says is all of that was fruitless. All of that was foolishness. My attempts to be right before the Lord in my own self, in my own works, was quite frankly stupid. Because it mattered nothing without faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, even though he obeyed all the Old Testament laws perfectly to the best of his understanding, He did not have a right standing with God. He was still guilty in the sight of God. And Paul is saying it is absolutely foolishness to think that you can, apart from Christ, stand aright in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. We once were foolish, but now we know that we stand in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us so that we might stand blameless in the presence of God, and so that we might experience the fullness of joy, so that we might not be foolish any longer, but stand sober-minded within the gospel. But continue on. The second description there is disobedient. Disobedient. Not only did Paul say that he was hate-filled, Vehement against this idea that he must submit or obey any authority, earthly authority, as mentioned there in verses 1 and 2, but even the authority of God as his maker. He was vehement against this idea that somehow we owed God some sort of obedience. And I know that seems so contrary to one another. Matt, you're telling me that that he was a Pharisee and obeyed every jot and tittle of the law that God gave to his people through Moses, and yet he hated the idea of owing God his obedience. Yes, that's the heart of the Pharisee. That's the dangers of the heart of the Pharisee. Remember Jesus's, remember Jesus's words about the Pharisee at the Sermon on the Mount? His diagnosis of them? They didn't obey the law for God to smile upon them and be pleased in them. They obeyed the law so that all the other people might look upon them and say, oh, look how righteous they are. Look how how holy they are. Look how, you know, they're good, practicing Jewish Pharisees. This is the cream of the crop. This is the best our community has to offer. 
They wanted it for, they wanted obedience. They practiced obedience so that they could get what they desired, this pat on the back, this earthly recognition. They were disobedient in their hearts, you see. And so one of the things in which Paul is reminding us of here is that there is a way in which we were those people who saw the will and the law of God and made a decision to go against it. Disobedient is a very active description, characteristic that the Apostle Paul gives. Before coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it was that we saw the law, we knew the law, and we hated the law. Therefore, we disobeyed it. We disobeyed it. This is what we would call in theological circles those sins of commission. I told the Sunday school class as some of our teaching was overlapping this morning that I was going to have to speak on this a little bit during the sermon. Because what we understand about sin is there's there's sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of omission is the fact that we fall short of God's glorious standards. That God has called us to be wives and husbands, fathers, mothers, grandmothers, grandfathers, employers, employees, church members, community members, community leaders, Christians. God has called us to all these different roles in this life and God has called us to do all of those things in a way that is ultimately glorifying to Him, in a way that is holy as His Son is holy. And we look upon the law and we say, Lord, there is no way that I meet the standard of living. That's sins of omission. We fall short. Sins of commission is that we know the law of God and we strike against it. That we know the law of God and we decide in the hardness of our heart to disobey it, to hate it. And Paul says, that's who I once was. I was guilty for breaking the law. I was guilty of disobedience. And why? Why was that? It was because simply he was, as the ESV puts it, led astray. Your translation might say deceived. But it was this idea that we have been led astray by the sins that are around us. The tempter. Satan himself, the deceiver who tries to lead us astray in the sinfulness of our hearts, the sinfulness of our flesh that tugs us away from the Lord. Our being led astray is threefold. The world, Satan, and the flesh. The deception in which we experience is threefold. The world, Satan, and the flesh. And the Apostle Paul says, we once were those who were led astray, and not just led astray, but loved the direction in which we were going. Loved the direction in which we were going. I, I don't think it's any secret uh, to many of you, especially to the men on Tuesday mornings, but uh, my family just wrapped up the Little Pilgrim's Progress. It's the Pilgrim's Progress for children uh, during our family worship time. And one of the most powerful scenes there in Little Pilgrim's Progress is when little Christian 
and his friend Hopeful were journeying to the celestial city. And they were told very early on their journey, this is the way of the king. The way of the king is always straight. No matter how glamorous the things might look on each side of the pathway of the king, do not leave the pathway of the king. Go straight. Go straight, go straight, go straight. That was a command given to little Christian and hopeful time and time again. But then they came towards the end of their pilgrim journey. They had almost reached the celestial city of the king and they were weary and they were tired little pilgrims. And they saw off of the way of the king, right on the other side of the fence, this beautiful field full of flowers and daisies, the freshest and the greenest of grasses. It was fluff and puff where it just was inviting them, just come and lay on me a while, get a little rest. And through deception, Little Christian and hopeful, they leave the way of the king and they fall asleep in this field surrounded or surrounding what, what was called Doubting Castle. And the giant despair captures them and they sit in a jail cell grieving that they had been led astray. That is the picture in which Paul paints for us. We were once those who loved doubting castle we were once those who loved the fields we were once those who wanted to just sit and rest no matter what the repercussions might be beloved we know that the paths of christ are straight and yet oftentimes we are led astray thinking that just a little nap on the other side of the fence won't lead to much harm, but disobedience always seems harmless, but it leads to grave consequences, doesn't it? That's why already the Apostle Paul in our text has commanded us to be sober-minded, always watching, ready for the fight against the world, the devil, and the flesh so that we might not be led astray. The next description there the fourth is that we were once slaves to various passions and pleasures you know this is something that that Paul really has to really has to wrestle with I think because if you understand the language in which he's using here it's especially vivid for us when we scratch at the original Greek language it is heavy it's this heaviness in and the futileness of chasing all of these things that seem to be that seem to be pleasurable but what the gospel says is sin is only pleasurable but for a moment it always leads to death and destruction and Paul writes in a way he says I was a slave to that pursuing these various passions and pleasures it enslaved me it enchained me have you ever felt that way have you ever felt what the apostle peter calls in first peter 2 9 the domain of darkness have you ever felt the captivity of sin and worldly pleasures that promise fulfillment but then quickly fade away if you have you know the burden in which it brings 
And Paul says, we were once enslaved to those things, but through Christ we have been saved. If I can use another illustration of Pilgrim's Progress, I'm sorry that I seem to be beating that drum this morning, but it seems to give illustration after illustration after illustration. Because all the way at the very beginning of the story, when little Christian is is in the city of destruction, his hometown, he says, I feel this weight, this burden upon my back. And I've tried everything that I could possibly think of to get rid of this burden. It's heavy, it's large. I don't like it and yet I can't get rid of it. And then evangelist comes and preaches the gospel to little Christian. And little Christian makes a determined mindset that I am going to go on the pilgrim's pathway and I'm going to go to the celestial city. And so immediately after he crosses through the narrow gate, the first thing in which he sees on the hill of difficulty is the cross. And little Christian says, I'm going to go up to the cross. Evangelist told me about this cross. I must see it for myself, this cross in which Jesus died. And so as he ascends the hill of difficulty, he starts off and it seems as if that burden is getting heavier and heavier and heavier. But as he takes his next step and the next step and the next step, what's remarkable about seeing the cross where sinners are saved is that little Christian finds that his steps are becoming easier and easier and easier. And he ponders this thing. And he says, how in the world can my burden as heavy as it is, make my steps easier as I crawl up this hill of difficulty. And he looks behind him and his burden is rolling away. See, the burden of sin is taken away at the foot of the cross of Christ. And all of these various passions and pleasures that seem to bring all of this joy and fulfillment, actually it casts a burden. It casts a burden that is so heavy. And Jesus Christ, the Savior, invites all people in Matthew chapter 11 to come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And what? I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. But Paul continues on in verse 3. And he says, We passed our days in malice and envy. We were hated by others and we hated one another. And so he's talking about this demeanor that he has for those surrounding him. He hates them. He hates them. And they hate, them. And they hate him. It's, it's a mutual hate-filled heart towards one another. Why is that? Because he despises, he's envious of those whom he looks at. And those who look at him, they see a nasty and a wicked man. That they, they can't even bear the thought of him walking into the city gates because they know the sin that fills his heart. Jesus says, if you love me, you will love one another. Well, apart from faith in Christ, not only do we not love Jesus, but we hate our neighbor. We're envious of our neighbor, but the Lord Jesus Christ, He comes and He changes the darkness to light and He changes the hate-filled heart to a heart that is soft and love. He, he comes and He takes an envious 
heart that covets what his neighbor has. And he gives us a spirit of contentment that says, I am blessed beyond measure. I have been given more from my heavenly Father than I have ever deserved. You see, as Paul recounts these things for us, the the way in which we once were, the way that we once lived, he, he kind of puts us at the very bottom of ourselves. He brings us to this weightiness of sin to recognize who we truly were. Also that we might look outside of ourselves for salvation and redemption. And that's exactly where he goes to in verse 4. If you really see yourself as described in the Word of God, especially here in verse 3, you'll notice that there's absolutely no possibility that you, dead in your sins and your trespasses, belonging to the dominion of darkness, loving the sins and the worldly pleasures that you commit and chase after, you all of a sudden realize, I cannot look inside of myself for any sort of salvation. I must look outside of myself to the goodness of God, my Savior, who has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, here's who we once were, but praise God, through Jesus Christ, here is what He has done. Look back at verse 5. He has saved us. He has saved us in the Lord's kindness. He has permitted our Savior to come into this world because He loved us. John 3.16, a message we know very well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So the reality of the Gospel that's declared to us in verses 4 and 5 is first that God showed His kindness for us, that He sent His only begotten Son to what? Save us. That's the second reality. But it's nothing that we have done. Notice that in verse 5. It's not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. You know, oftentimes we wrestle with this, don't we, in Presbyterian circles because we believe in things like the doctrine of election where God, before the foundations of the world, He chooses us for salvation. Why does He do such a thing? Is it because He looks through the quarter of time and He says, well, I know that Matt will choose me, so all the way back before creation, I'm going to choose him. No. That's not what the text says, does it? It's nothing, absolutely nothing in ourselves that causes us to be saved by the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, who appeared. No, it's simply because of His, what? His own mercy. I love how the catechisms and the confession says it. It calls it mere mercy. Mere mercy, nothing other than a merciful God calls us unto salvation takes hard hearts and replaces them with hearts of flesh, who breathes new spiritual life into our lungs so that we might breathe and live for His glory, who breaks the chains of sin and death, sets the prisoner free. It is the Lord Jesus Christ out of His mercy for us that we can be redeemed. It's not any work that we have done, any choosing of our own. 
It's only the effectual calling, the unconditional election of the Almighty God. And he says here at the end of verse 5, the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And that means something for us, doesn't it? Because the washing that is speaking or that's spoken of here is that idea that the blood of Jesus Christ washes all of our sins away. We sing it in that well-known hymn, nothing but the blood, don't we? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The washing of regeneration. He makes us clean, but also He renews us by the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36 and 37 is that vision of the valley of dry bones. And in that vision of the valley of dry bones, the prophet Ezekiel looks upon this valley and it's all dead. All he sees is deadness. And he hears the voice. Oh, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel rightly says, well, God, only you know. And God tells him, well, Ezekiel, speak to the bones, preach the gospel, pray for the wind, pray for the Holy Spirit. And as he begins to speak the message of salvation to these bones, the wind begins to blow and the bones begin to rattle and tendons and sinews, the text says, begins to form the skeleton and then he begins to preach again. And the Spirit blows again and then he sees the lungs expanding and he sees the men walking and he sees the flesh taking over the bones. And that is the picture of the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That he takes those who are dead in their trespasses of sins and by the preaching of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he breathes new life into the lungs of the elect. And what is our response? Lord willing, next week we're going to look at just the work of the Holy Spirit in more detail. But what is our response? As, as people of God who once were dead in our sins and our trespasses, what is our response? The Apostle Paul again tells us in Colossians chapter 3. You can turn there if you want to, but in closing I'm going to read the first 17 verses. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Hear this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires. Do not covet, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, there's that language again, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new, which is beginning 
which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called into one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Lord, may it be so in each and every one of us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the gospel of God who has taken away the old self and has given us a new. You have, Lord, through the gospel, made us new creations. You have predestined us for glory. You have chosen us, plucked us out of this world. And so may we be reminded, yes, of what we once were, but may we also seek to put away those earthly things that still strive to lead us astray. Let us not be ones who are hate-filled, but let us be ones who love one another. Let us be those who are not foolish, but sober-minded. Let us be those, Lord, who are not deceived, but always watching, so that we might be ready on the last day that the Lord comes again. But until then, Lord, let us put to death, enable us to put to death what is earthly in us. Let us, Lord, put on then, as your chosen people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Father, we pray that we would be living vessels for your glory and your glory alone. Advance your kingdom in and through us. We ask these things. Amen.